You're listening to the newest podcast from Radii China. Here we're going to talk to guests of different backgrounds from various industries, each with their own story, in the hope of challenging some of our own perspectives by hearing things from another angle. I'm Wes Chen, and you're listening to China from All Angles. I mean, look, if you listen to the media, it just scares you to go to China. Combat sports originated in China thousands、mm. of years ago. It was nice to go full circle and, and be part of the Zhang Weili road to the gold. We may not have the belt now, but she's still a champion in my eyes.、Uh, China has been a, an amazing experience, and it, it's still a huge part of my life. China from All Angles is brought to you by East West Bank, the premier financial bridge between the U.S. and China. East West Bank offers unparalleled services for individuals and companies who build connections between the two countries. East West Bank, bridging cultures, bridging opportunities, bridging dreams. For more info, visit eastwestbank.com. Member FDIC and equal housing lender. All right, today we have Ruben Payan Jr., U.S. Marine Corps veteran, conqueror of the Seven Summits, director of the Institute of Human Performance Asia, author, film producer. And head strength and conditioning coach for former UFC champ Zhang Weili, as well as Yan Xiaonan and Li Jingliang. Well,、wow, sounds better when you say it than when I read. <laughs> You've got an amazing story, Ruben, and I'd just like to start from as close to the beginning as possible.、Okay. So I understand that you grew up in Arizona. If you could tell us what your household was like and what your upbringing was like. Just to give us a better picture of what made the Ruben that we see today.、Uh, my roots, <laughs> right? Yeah, your roots.、Um, well, you know, I was actually raised by my grandparents, and so my aunts and uncles are actually kind of like my brothers and sisters. And so,、um, growing up in that older generation, I, I was raised very traditional. You know, my my grandparents are raised us very Hispanic, you know, Mexican kind of upbringing. Boys were supposed to be men by the time they were twelve. You know, you should have a full-time job by, your th- by the time you're thirteen. You know, it was a very,、um, yeah, kind of a military kind of household. So yeah, that's how I was raised. My grandparents were just a little; they were very strict. You know, I was a I was a really good athlete,、um, but they believed that extra sports or、uh, other types of activities after school was considered fun and. Fun in our household meant that you weren't doing your chores. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> it was more of my grandma than my grandfather, because、um, you know in the Hispanic household the mom rules, right, in the house. So it's really one of those things where I, I was always really, really athletic. Anything, any activities at school, I would, I would excel, and but I just wasn't really nurtured and supported to be able to. Play sports like on a regular basis, you know, and actually take it seriously. I, I really wanted to be a professional baseball player, but that takes a a huge support system.、Mm-hmm. You have to travel, you have to go to games, you got to buy the gear, you got to do all of that stuff, right? But I didn't have that kind of support. Not saying that I would have gone pro, but I think knowing who I am today, I probably I probably would have, right? So, long story short. Um, I just, 
I would kind of do things on my own and create my own events when I was a kid, right? <laughs> right. I create my own Olympics. I'd create my own games, and I would just kind of it, it, on the weekends and when I did have time, I would just kind of play and be my own kind of all star. <laughs> Since I was a kid, I felt like I was always winning because I would <laughs> I would pretend pretend that I was winning all the time. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I totally get you. Making the last second shot, all of that. <laughs> totally. I always <laughs> won the game. <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, you mentioned your family brought you up with a sort of like military style. Is there a military background in your family? Um, no, not military in the sense where, you know, it was everything was extremely rigid. It was just, you know, your rule, the responsibilities and there was only two tones. There was either we say it once or we're yelling. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I was in a house with, when I was very little, there was 10 of us, you know, so that there was chaos. And I was the youngest mm. because my grandparents had nine children. One of them passed away. Actually, it was 11 um, kids total. And then my sister, my mom, my mom had my sister before myself. And my sister went to live with my grandmother four years before I did. I was the youngest, so I always got like the hand-me-down clothes, and I always got like everyone's leftovers on the plate, and you know it was kind of like the whole tribe kind of raised you, which is kind of interesting because you know family was so important to my grandfather, right? Um, making millions and millions of dollars wasn't important to him, but having a strong family that came together was extremely important to him. That was that was his most important thing is taking care of. His his family. So yeah, it was military in a sense. No one really had a military background except myself, but uh, it was just kind of that environment. It was like, do what you're told, right? And it was either we'll tell you to do it or we'll yell at you to get it done. That was kind of what it was. So what was it that motivated you to join the Marine Corps? Well, you know, I have a son and my son is 26 now and I'm 43. So i 17 years old. My girlfriend got pregnant at 16. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine a 16-year-old now finding out that he's going to be a father. I mean, it kind of freaks you out, right? But back in the day, it was normal. Your great-grandparents, that was normal to have kids at 16, 15. Right. And so I remember when I found out that Val was pregnant, I told my grandmother. My grandmother was excited because in our household, that, that was something that kept you grounded. So it was like, okay, great. Now you can settle down, right? No one in my family ever said, you know, your life's going to suck. You're not going to achieve anything. No one ever said that. They just like, that's awesome. Like, you're going to be a father. You know, it was a really big, it was a really big deal for my family. So it was uh, was scary for myself because, you know, at 16 years old, you try to figure out, okay, how are you going to afford the baby, Mm -hmm. right? But I had already been working pretty much since I was 12 or 13. So I was already making my own money to where I could, I had enough experience to say, you know what, I can handle this. You ask a 16 year old now, it's like, (laughs) heck no, right? Right. But back then everyone was growing up quick. By the time you're 15, you're you're working summer jobs, you got money in your pocket and and you're waiting to get your license, right? Right. Just a different kind of upbringing. But um, yeah, I remember when she told me I was scared, I was nervous. And then she asked me, she said, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to keep the baby? Do you want to give him up for adoption? And I was like, heck no. This is my baby. 
I think about it now in these in these times, I'm like, man, I was so mature for 16, right? But I just, I, I loved her and I just felt like this is my baby, you know? So it was a good thing. So so what happened is uh, the baby was born and he was, he was a little sick when he was growing up, when he was early, when he was born, he was, he was a little sick and and you know the medical bills and the dental bills and all those things that you start thinking about mm-hmm. and so my my logic the logic behind it was if i go to the military the military will pay for you know his insurance and his medical and and i'll be able to send money home on a regular basis right and i thought that it was the responsible thing to do Mm-hmm. is to go to the military, establish myself. It's a good foundation for a career and any, anything that you want to do. Um, and then I can send money home on a regular basis. The baby's taken care of. And then when the baby's getting ready to start school at five years old, you know, um, kindergarten, then I'll be back, you know? Right. Because when you get older, you don't remember when you're two, but you remember when you're like six or seven, right? Right, right. So my thinking was, I'll leave now. He'll be fine. Then I get back. He'll be a little older, a little easier to take care of. And then I'll just come back and get a job and, and continue on with my life. And, and that's what I did is uh, I went for the first four years and I only saw him a few times a year. And then I got out and he just was getting ready to start school. So just I, like you my planned. Big, my, yeah, my big thing was I wanted to be there for his first day of school. So it, it, was, it, it was good. Yeah. Okay. I heard a story about when you were a child that your mother said you pointed at a star and you said the word China. Right. Did you always have an interest in Asia or more specifically China? And and like, where did that come from? Well, you know what? My mom told me that story. Um, So when I, when I had mentioned to her that I was going to go to China, she was like a hundred percent supportive because she was like, Oh, that was kind of in your, in your cards. You know, you kind of put it out there when you were younger. Maybe you didn't know it, or maybe it was just written in your story. She said, we were driving in the car, I pointed to the star and I said, China. And, and maybe I was referring to maybe the sun is coming up as the sun's going down here, right? In the US, mm. the sun's going mm. up there, but but she'll never forget that. And, and it just all kind of fell in place. And uh, China has been a, an amazing experience and it, it's still a huge part of my life. Uh, you know, with the people and and just with everything that I've done there. Did you know about anything about China at that time as a child, though? I mean, no, you know, I mean, look, if you listen to the media, you listen to things online, it just scares you to go to China, right? Mm -hmm. It, It scares you to go anywhere except stay in your own country. And it was interesting because I originally I was going to go to China because I wanted to study uh, Shaolin. I wanted to go to the Shaolin Temple. I, it was 2000 and 2005, and I just kind of wanted to have a reset button on my life. You know, you'll get to a point in your life where you're like, you know what, I got to make a change. I don't know what that change is, uh, but I just have to do something. You'll get this, your intuitiveness will tell you I got to change something. And I said, you know what? You know, prior military, I really enjoy that kind of structure. You know, I'm into fitness. I thought maybe Shaolin, going to Shaolin Temple for a year would actually be awesome. And then I can come back to the U.S. and kind of implement some of the Eastern methodologies in this training with some of the Western kind of methodologies for fitness. I thought it would be a cool combo. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that was in 2005. And so I made a one year plan to exit the US. I was going to sell everything and I was going to come to China and just kind of restart my new life. But a few months before I was leaving, uh, I met my girlfriend that I have now. Um, we've been together 15 years. And we just found love. I mean, what can you say? Love love overrides a lot of things, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I, I asked her if she would come to, if she was interested in coming to China with me. Mm. I originally thought she would say no because she had her own life here, but uh, she loves me that much and she wanted that experience um, that she said yes. So I was like, wow, okay. I guess uh, we have to make some changes. We're not going to go to the Shaolin Temple. And we went to the Beijing Sports University mm-hmm. and studied Qigong, which is like total opposite. <laughs> Qigong, super slow. Shaolin Kung Fu, explosive and dynamic. Right, <laughs> so, right, right. So, yeah, we spent some time at the, at the Beijing Sports University um, in 2007. Um, and we studied, uh, yeah, Qigong. So that's actually kind of interesting to me as well, that you wanted or you felt like it would be beneficial to incorporate some of these Eastern philosophies, whether it be Shaolin Kung Fu or Qigong, uh, into the Western philosophies of training or health in general. Do you still feel that way after having studied Qigong and have, you know, gotten a lot closer to some of these Eastern philosophies? Well, actually, I think it's rooted in the same belief system. This body is designed to move, designed to be pliable and flexible and all of these things, right? The West just says it in a different way, and then we back it up with science Mm. and put it in books, and that's like legit. In the East, it's more about has been brought up through generations and generations, and there's a written form but there's really no backed up science, right? It's through the thousands of years of doing it. Guess what? You do it for a thousand years, you get better, (laughs) right? So it's like, we need to create mobility. We call that one thing in the West, you call that something else, right? To transfer energy through the body, you do this, which creates a lot of mobility and all the flexibility and all that, it's like, you know, eat your apples to get the vitamins, right? Like, don't worry, the vitamins are in there. Do this and you'll get more flexible and more pliable and you'll feel better, right? Here, everybody wants to know the why, 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 and what's backing it with science, right? And then a few years later, they change it because that wasn't necessarily true. They found a better way to do it or a better way to explain it, right? Um, So, now that I'm back in the U.S., over 20 years of being in fitness, I look at you know, the methodologies of Kung Fu and Qigong, and it's a beautiful lifestyle practice. It's like playing chess. Like When you think you're getting better, you find a practitioner that's even better because they've mm-hmm. been practicing longer. So it's a beautiful art form that has so many other benefits than just physical. I mean, just the whole spiritual side of it is a beautiful thing. Yeah, you connecting to nature, connecting to other people, and I, I, I love it. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Okay, so it was your involvement with IHP and functional training that actually brought you the opportunity 
to train and work with these Chinese UFC fighters such as Li Jingliang. What was your first impression of these fighters when you started working with them? And how did they differ from some of the international fighters that you may have encountered in the past? So let me just kind of rewind a little bit. So when we finished with the school, you know, we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do because we made the decision to stay there. It was only supposed to be a year. So we decided to stay and, and fitness is something that I've always done and always loved. And so we decided to open up a fitness studio. So I was the one with my partner. We had opened up the first functional training studio in China, like legitimate, right? I mean, I was importing products from the U.S. in 2000, right after 2008. We were paying ridiculous amounts of money to get it imported, right? Now they manufacture everything there. But this was before the Alibaba craze. It was like the early days, you know what I mean? Right. Um, so part of the studio, what I wanted to do, I had about three coaches that were working with me. I wanted to have a system that all of the coaches could train by so that the clients could feel the synergy with their training session. So it was, it felt more unit like it was, a, it was more, you know, I'm military. So I kind of want that system. So when I did my research, this was in 2008, um, IHP, I really resonated with IHP. And so I reached out to the, the CEO, uh, JC, Juan Carlos Santana, and I said, look, I'd like to come and do a mentorship in Florida. I flew from Beijing to Florida, went through a mentorship with him, came back, and then I taught my coaches, you know, some of the basics for IHP. You know, like anything else, you have to practice, right? And we were just getting crazy results, like really, really crazy. And the cool thing about IHP is we have something called a hybrid system, which kind of was influenced by Bruce Lee, where you take yeah. different methodologies and you kind of bring it together and all of them are okay. It's just which one do you need at the time, right? So it was already kind of had a, it already had an Asian kind of backing to it, right? Um, and we were just getting amazing results. I mean, people's run times were going down. I mean, backs were getting better. It was amazing. And then I said, man, I'd really love to like, work with the company, you know, like really become a practitioner and a teacher and really embrace um, going down uh, the different types of books and the different types of uh, training methods uh, within IHP. And so I went back to, um, to Florida and JC came to China and we were the first ones to ever hold a functional training certification for Chinese coaches mm. uh, in China first one you know all of the big organizations like you know mft or you have like one fit mm -hmm. uh you know you have uh dp you know you have all of the big those were all of our students like those guys are like my colleagues were my students in 2008 because they were the first ones to ever go through the functional training certification so i'm like really ingrained in china fitness I'm really well known amongst the practitioners and the CEOs of all these big companies now because I've been there, you know. So um, that being said, I just went through the whole process of being mentored by JC. So through that process, I got better. Um, I got smarter and got better results. And then right around 2009, 2010, they started sending like Li Jingliang to me. 
because mm-hmm. he was just getting picked up by the UFC. Right. Yeah, he was with still with Legend. And so I started working with Li Jingliang first. And then he got really good results. He was winning. And he had just gone a little bit further than his, uh, his, uh, his mentor, Tetuan, Tetuan Zhang, yeah. Um, so it, it was good. He, and he's like ranked number 11 or 12 right now in the UFC welterweights, which is amazing, right? So that's kind of how it all started. So I started with Leach. And then from Leach, him getting more wins and getting more results, it was an easy choice for the other camps to send people to me. Had you worked with other athletes from the West uh, in the past? And did you notice a difference maybe in Chinese athletes, maybe the way they think, the way they train? Well, I think that, you know, Chinese athletes and just, I can just paint 99% of Chinese athletes. The coach is God, right? (laughs) It's just what it is. Like, it's like the coach is like, is on a pedestal, right? And coming from the West, you know, there's so many great coaches here, right? Um, In in China at the time, there just wasn't many. Mm -hmm. You know, there wasn't many of me's. Like I was the only guy, you know? Um, So I just really took that responsibility um, and and really tried to do my very best service to the athletes. Now, when I have to work side by side with the Chinese coach, the approach is a little different because we're a little more compassionate on our side. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Western coaches are a little more understanding. We're like, hey, you look a little tired. Take the day off. Like, you know what I mean? Not Chinese coaches. (laughs) It's like foot on the gas, let's go 1,000 miles an hour, and if you get hurt, you weren't ready. <laughs> Which is probably why they treat all the coaches that way. They're just used to being treated with such strict discipline, right? Yeah, I mean, look, and it's brought, it's brought great, great rewards and medals, but the process, you know, how many, how many athletes you have to go through to find that one gem, yeah? Mm. Can you take a mediocre fighter or a mediocre athlete and make them great and realize that it wasn't really so much about the training, it was the physical training, it was about the environment that you train them in, mm. right? Because if an athlete knows that you're willing to go to war with them, they give you everything, right? So I think that's the difference between the Chinese uh coaches and the u.s coaches is we're just a little more compassionate and understanding with the athlete and the chinese coaches are like yeah shut up get back in there (laughs) so when the when this when the coaches the excuse me the fighters would come to me and i'd see them and they were tired man you know what i mean and i would say okay this is what we had on the schedule but we're going to back it off a little bit we're going to work on other areas that we need to get better at so that you can rest because we can use the training session as a way to nurture you instead of thrash you more. Because if you get a cold and you're out for 10 days or a week, it ruins the whole camp, yeah? So I think I, I added a whole new kind of balance to the, the fighters in, uh, in China. So you also, during your time here, got to witness sort of the evolution of MMA in China. Were you able to go to some of like the early events and how would you say MMA is perceived by Chinese audiences? I mean, back in the day, I mean, nobody knew what it was. I mean, I I don't know if it's even mainstream yet. 
You know what I mean? Um, it's not football. Mm-hmm. Football and MMA in China, you talk about football, everybody knows football. You talk about MMA, not everybody knows MMA. They may know Zhang Wei Li, or they mm-hmm. may know the athlete's name, but they don't really know about the sport of MMA. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's like anything else, the, the evolution of the athletes getting better and the, the methodologies and approach to training the, the fighters has gotten better overall uh, across the board. But I think in, the, in China, what I think is so ironic is because combat sports originated in China thousands mm-hmm. of years ago. And so it's nice to see it come back. And it was nice to go full circle and, and be part of the Zhang Wei Li road to the gold. It, it, was like, it was like full circle for me, right? We may not have the belt now, but she's still a champion in my eyes. Like she'll always be a champion, right? So, yeah, I, I, it just it has evolved. Um, it's gotten better. I think the more and more the the East and the West work together um, to make the athletes better, I think it's a win-win for both sides. With having a champion like Zhang Weili, have you noticed at all that there's like a growing interest in MMA? More people maybe wanting to not just watch MMA and UFC, but also maybe even train? Well, I mean, you got to understand wherever there's money, you find more people. Mm. No one had ever broken through it on a global stage and said, wow, you can make this a career and you're a female in a mostly dominated male sport. Like, holy smokes. And you can become financially pretty good, right? You, I think that just opened up the doors for other people saying, you know what? I have a passion for combat sports. I want to give it a shot. And it's like the first one to get over the river Right. It's like, wow, they achieved the most uh, unimaginable thing and they do. It, and you're like, I think I can do it, too. And I think that's what you're starting to see with the fighters. And uh, they're realizing the young fighters that you can do this and make a career. It can be a great career. Um, and the pioneers are the ones that really set that in place. It's a uh, kind of a lot like NBA when Yao Ming got into the league just like that yeah do you think mma has a chance to be as big as basketball in china or i mean in in america it's almost over overtaken boxing almost right in terms of popularity maybe but boxing still brings in the money you know what i mean like boxing still the big money maker the fighter may not fight as often but when they fight i mean they sell millions on pay-per-view and they're making millions of dollars to fight. So maybe it's not as popular, or maybe it's not maintaining its popularity like it was because people have choices. They can watch the UFC, they can watch Bellator, they can watch other combat sports. There's so many now. Uh, so there's so many other choices. That's part of it too. Um, but I think that boxing will always have its, like, its pedigree. Like, it's always gonna have its foundation I don't think it's going away. I think it's actually getting more popular because of the YouTubers are actually boxing. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, it's great. I think it's awesome. Yeah. I think that's okay. great. Yeah. So you wrote a book in 2016 called We Are and produced it into a film two years later called We Are War. Um, well, actually, the word is the We Are, W-A-R is actually, war is actually in We Are. So we are war 
is actually the name of the book, but I only put the two words, we are. Ah, okay. I so see. So the, the passion behind the story was war only exists because we create it within ourselves. Our perception of other people within me creates this desire to go inflict pain or conflict with somebody else. So we are the problem. We are we are the reason why war exists. That's the mm. whole. That's the whole mm. idea. So the what's the fastest way to stop war? Just people don't want to fight. Right, right. So people don't want to fight. Then there's no war, right? If everybody in the chain of commands like you went on to do this, like who's gonna force you to do it, right? Right, right. If the people that are enforcing you to do it say we are not even gonna enforce you, it all kind of falls apart, right? So it goes back, yeah. The movie's real. This story's really about um, how when any soldier or anyone buys into the story that we need to travel to a distant land, we need to do this, we need to defend that. As soon as they leave the house, the fight is no longer against the enemy. The fight is to return home. It's the whole fight. Everybody that goes to combat, all they want to do is what? Survive. And get where? <laughs> get, back get back home. home. Yeah. <laughs> so the question is, why would you leave in the first place? So the, the book is really about um, that. It's really about how believe a certain thing and, and it grows into this ball of energy that you have to take action on. But as soon as you kiss the kids and you say goodbye to the wife and you say goodbye to your family, you get over there in this distant land. And then what happens? You just want to get back. Right, right, right. So that that's really what the story is about. It's really about, you know, how can we find alternative ways to really get through these big problems that I think the whole world has to deal with now that we're so intertwined. Um, and I think physical combat is kind of like, it's kind of old, you know, we have to find new and, and innovative ways to get together and work together because, you know, we all are interdependent of one another, regardless if we want to believe it or not, we truly are. We all need each other. Countries need each other for resources, for you know, economics and, and all of that. So uh, the book is really about how underneath war, is really human beings wanting to do the same thing, and that's just get back home to their family. So. I have to admit, I have not read it, but I did. I did read a synopsis, and it seems very exciting. Uh, I almost want to watch the film as well because it seems like a really action-packed type of like in the near future type of uh, thriller type of movie or story. Yeah. And I understand the main characters are a U.S. Marine gunnery sergeant. Correct. And a Chinese PLA captain. Correct. So where were you when you wrote this story? Actually, I'll tell you the funny thing. It's whole story. It's a true story. It came to me in my dream. I, I dreamt the whole story in my head from start to finish. It was like a whole movie. I woke up and I was a little emotional about it. It was a, kind of an emotional kind of story. Uh, and I was a little teary-eyed. I was crying a little bit to my girlfriend, and I was talking about it. And I wouldn't stop talking about it. Like, I kept talking about it and talking about it. And then I just started writing, right? And I just started writing. I started writing. I'm not a professional writer, 
I'm not claiming to be a professional writer, but I'm a creative guy, right? So all I did was I just went and I just created scenes of what I saw, right? And then I put that in words. And then I worked with a professional writer to help me articulate these scenes. So yes, it was a, a, a cooperation of, of, of a couple of different people. I went to a few people for help. And I said, look, I'm not a professional writer, but this is what I had. And it was maybe 40 or 50 pages. And I, I, I said, help me. And so I had some really good people that helped me put it together. And then um, it was finished. He got it published. And, and then I'm like, man, I'd love to turn this into a short film. Like, you know, I'd like to put it to film. And so my buddy, Vince Soberano, Vince was the uh, founder of Black Tiger. Right, right. Yeah, well, he went to school for film. And so he's directing now full time out of Taiwan. And so I reached out to him. We're really close friends. And I, I said, hey, look, you know, there's my budget. I gave him my budget. And I said, look, I want to self-fund this short film. Um, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, I think we can do it. And so he didn't take any salary. He just wanted to kind of see my dream come to life. And um, it, it was a beautiful thing. We we put it on the short film circuit and it did really well. I think we won 12 or 13 awards. I just haven't posted it publicly yet. It's not time. I think it'll, it'll, it'll happen, but I just haven't posted it. So you actually never had aspirations as a writer. It, it was just this dream that came to you one night that you felt like you had to get it on paper? Well, interesting stories that, you know, in retrospect, as you look back and like, I was never really a creative writer, but do you think when you were younger, you actually were, right? It's a, the cool thing about it is when you're a kid, you're everything, right? Mm. You're a writer, you're an engineer, you're everything because you're just doing it, right? You're building, you know, clubhouses and tree houses and you don't know the, the technical side of it. You're just kind of putting things together, right? Um, but when I was younger, my aunt, Frances, she passed away a few years ago, um, but she used to play the guitar and she used to write poetry. And so she would play the guitar and she would tell me to sing these lyrics. So I was maybe six years old, seven years old, and she would babysit me and she introduced me to poetry, the, the form of, of, of writing. And, and how you can articulate what you want to say through the art of writing, creative writing. So it's always kind of been kind of there. I just never really as an adult really embraced it. I really love it now. It's really a beautiful thing. I want to ask you about this dream. In this dream, were you the main character in the story? No, I was not. You were like witnessing this stuff happen. I was witnessing the whole thing. Yeah. And you were in Beijing at the time when you had this dream. I was living in Beijing at the time. I had just returned from Mount Everest. I had just came back from Everest. Um, I was at the house and yeah, I just, it was like a zip file. Like you unzip it and like in one night. And then maybe it took me about three or four months of writing and putting it together um, to really polish it. But yeah, man, it was, it was just a complete download that was, it's kind of like it came from heaven. Like I had never written anything before like that. Um, I didn't think that could be like part of my life as as a, as an adult. And uh, you know, like I said, God God has the plan, and sometimes the universe tells you what you need to do, and you just do it. You know. Right. I think dreams often come to us from sometimes from our personal experiences, and maybe stuff that we're thinking about, you know, a lot of the time. And 
you know, you being a U.S. Marine veteran who was living in China. Right. How were you received when by by Chinese people when you told them, you know, when they found out that you were a former U.S. military? You know, I don't it's not something it's just like the seven summits. I don't run around telling everybody that I'm a seven summiter. Right. Um, I don't run around telling everybody that I was a Marine. You know, I like to build a relationship first and then through the relationship, you can understand more about who we're talking to. You know, mm-hmm. um, so it wasn't until probably we've already become like acquaintances that mm-hmm. they found out that I was a Marine. But I've never had any issues in China with anyone uh, for being prior military. I was even asked one time I couldn't do it because um, I had to ask permission from the embassy, but they wouldn't allow me to do it. But I was even asked one time to go do a, a fitness training class for one military unit. And that was years ago, but I couldn't do it because I had prior military. It just wouldn't look good on, mm-hmm. on either right. side, right? So, right. yeah. So, no, I've never had any issues. Not at all. The Marine Corps is, is always going to be part of my life. Uh, I've, I've since grown to understand that everybody can be part of your life. Um, you just can't listen to the, to the radio too much and watch too much YouTube. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, exactly. But I do sometimes wonder, you know, especially with this uh, – with this like basic background and the two main characters of your story, what a Chinese PLA captain would be like, or what, how he would be received in America versus the other way around, you know? Uh, I, 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 yeah, I, I probably not well. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest, right? We're not here to, to lie. I mean, it's probably not well. Right. Which is all about culture and conditioning. Right. It's really one side's like, yeah, there's certain boundaries where you can kind of access, but it's pretty much they accepted me. I didn't have a problem here would probably be a little, yeah, probably be a little awkward. Yeah. I often think like, I don't, I don't think that should be the first, well, I don't even know if they would be able to get into the country. That's first. That's the first thing. Uh, Second of all, I don't think they would even say that they, right. (laughs) <laughs> that they were a, a Chinese captain or, or previous captain. Yeah. Right. Okay. Back to training Chinese athletes. Yeah. Or even Chinese people that you've trained who have gone through your program. Have language or cultural differences ever been an obstacle in that process? I mean, it's like anything else, you know. I, I, I wasn't a visitor in China. I was in China. You know, I wasn't a transient. I wasn't just passing through. You know what I mean? Maybe originally I wanted to go to China to kind of learn these secrets, this Eastern philosophy, right? And you get there, you're like, they're not too different than we are, right? But then you get there and you're like, okay, I'm going to build something here. But I didn't want to build something and feel like I was just a take, take, take kind of foreigner. Mm Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do something that actually kind of helped an industry and helped grow an industry and feel part, like I contributed, right? And and, and I feel like through a lot of other people's help, I, I feel like we've done that. Uh, I just couldn't sleep at night if I felt like I was just there to make money. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make me feel good. But um, yeah, I think initially it was a little difficult because fitness was so green like fitness was so green everybody was still like in the bodybuilding and Arnold Schwarzenegger right 
And so this whole functional training thing, like no one really understood what we were talking about when we started doing the courses and stuff like that. Now, amazing, amazing coaches there in China, really good coaches. So I'm really proud of uh, just being part of it and, and watching Chinese coaches blossom into great professionals. It's been great. Yeah, I feel like fitness and sports is something that very easily can break down any language or cultural barriers because it's all about being a human and like the limitations of the human body, which we all share. I, I agree. And push-ups don't care. They, <laughs> they, they cause pain to everybody. You know what I mean? Like I said, you know, underneath all of the, the the stories, we're really kind of the same. You know, we we have the same fears and the same worries, and we suffer the same types of pain. Um, you know, coming back, and I miss China a lot, and and, and I'm happy to be home with my family, and and so I, I'm really neutral, right? There's good things about China. There's some bad things about China. Same thing in the U.S. And I'm really, really neutral because I, I kind of live these two lives, right? Um, so you know, I'll hear people talk about China here, and I'm like, you've probably never been there. And right. then you hear people talk about the U.S. and they're like, you probably never been there, right? right? right. So you, you kind of let them just kind of ramble on, but they don't really understand what it's really like. And you know, taking a week visit. And going visiting some tourist spots doesn't make you experienced with China. Right, right. It's a, it's a, it takes time. <laughs> I can totally relate with you. I'm still on the other side, but I can totally relate. Yeah. Um, what would you say you miss about it most? You know, I guess you know. I'll tell you, it's interesting because I'm kind of going through this period where I'm like, I have such a huge identity in China because I was there and I. And then you come back to the U.S. and people don't really know me. They know me from John Whaley's coach, but in the fitness industry, it's it. They don't really know who I am. Right? In China fitness, they know who I am. So, uh, I mean, it was a few months ago. I was talking to Cammy, and I'm like, man, I'm kind of going through an identity crisis. You know what I mean? It's like you feel like, like you have self worth mm. being in China, and then you come here, and it's like, yeah, nobody cares. You, you know what I mean? Um, I, I just miss the people. I, I miss the people. I have really good friends, like real friends, um, that I've had for many, many years. Um, you know, my first employee that I hired there, he's been with me for over 11 years. Um, I met him when he was folding towels at the Westin hotel. Uh, I went to do a presentation for their little fitness team, uh, that was running, their wellness center and he was folding towels you know he's a he's a good buddy of mine he's like a brother to me so i miss the people and the noodles and the food <laughs> there is such thing as reverse culture shock there is 100 right. at, at the same time you know i I'm, I'm happy to be close to my family here um i just can't wait till the traveling opens up again and i can travel freely between both countries uh, I'll definitely, I have to go back. I want to go back. How would you say living here for such a long period of time has changed your perspective? Uh, perspectives on, on, on what? Could be, could be anything. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, living in, here's the cool thing about China. Living in China, you know, within four or five hours, you're in a different country, right? So you got Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore. And so you kind of get to experience all of Asia, 
living in China, you know? Here in the U.S., in Mexico, what, Canada, maybe South, you know? So you don't really get a chance to experience so many countries. And it's interesting because previously you think of Asians and it's kind of just kind of maybe put them all in the same bowl, right? But it's not like that. <laughs> Singaporeans are different from the Malaysians. The Malaysians are different from the Taiwanese. You know, you know what I mean? And so um, I just have a whole new respect, not just for mainlanders, but for Asians in general and respect each individual culture in, uh, separately. You, you know, it, they have their own history. You know, right. they sometimes don't even get along with each other. You know, right. <laughs> but I think that for me, it's really allowed me to embrace a whole other side of the world. Right. And feel like, wow, I don't I'm not afraid to travel to any of those countries uh, in the future. So that's been great because I can pass that on to my son and my grandchildren. And it changes the whole the lineage, uh, the lineage of thinking that you have to stay in your own country. I wanted to change that. And now they can be a little more free thinking and open. Now that you're back and you're back immersed in American society, what would you say is the biggest misconception of China? Um, uh, from the U.S. to China? Um, well, you know, I, I think, and, and I'll, I'll say this without causing any problem on, on the Internet, right? But what the government says and what the people think are two totally different things. Let's put that straight, right? Like, the MBA is loved everywhere, Right? Regardless of what the government says about the NBA, the fans are the fans. Right. You can take a Chinese fan and put them next to a New Yorker. You can take a Chinese fan, put them next to a Texan, and they're fans, right? Right. I just think that sometimes you kind of have to put the static away, and you just have to really look at it from a human-to-human -human perspective. Uh, and I think, but if it, it's like a soap opera, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> if you buy into one story, just wait because the next one's coming. And pretty mm -hmm. soon you try to paint the whole country and the people with one brush. And this is on both sides, yeah? Not, not, all, not all Americans are arrogant. You know, not all Americans are, not all Americans are super patriots. You know what I mean? Not all Americans right. live in Beverly Hills and the big houses. You know what I mean? Right. So I think it was interesting because I remember – it was early on when I was living there. I was talking to a friend of mine there, and he he thought everybody lived like in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, he, this was before the internet boom and WeChat and all the information. He had access to all this stuff online, and you know, all he knew was like Hollywood movies, like DVDs, and and he thought that everybody in the U.S. was like super wealthy, you know, lived in these beautiful homes, drove these expensive cars and i'm like no it's not <laughs> it's not like that at all you know we got we have poor people we have really poor people and there's still kids in this country that go to bed hungry you right. know so don't believe every don't believe everything that you watch online or watch in the movies because all countries have to deal with the same issues yeah what would you think young people in the west should understand about China today? Like, I don't know if you've brought your son over or someone like his age who's maybe never been here or doesn't really understand what it's like here. 
What do you think is most important for them to know about here? Well, you know, I brought my son to China. He lived with me for three different times. The first time he lived with me when he was 13. Uh, then he came back when he was 15, 16. Um, and then he came back at uh, 18. And then he stayed with me, uh, 19, about 19 years old. Then he stayed with me until he was 24. So he, he's gotten a chance to see China at different stages of the evolution, right, uh, of, of the growth of China. Um, and he's a fan. You know? <laughs> I mean, he's, a, he's a fan because it's like anything else. You, know, you talk to Chinese that have now live in the U.S., like, they're fans. They're fans right. of the U.S., right? right? Like, for whatever reason, you call it freedoms, you call it the ability to say whatever you want, whatever. They love it, right? It's like, hey, okay, it's time for you to go back and live full time in China. They're like, no, I'd rather stay here, right? Being American living in, in China, you take it for granted because you can always come back. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It, being an American, you can always come back and just back in the U.S., right? You know, Chinese sometimes don't have that choice because they could live here in the U.S. and they might not be able to stay here anymore, right? So I just think that I, I, the, the message that I want to tell young people is think outside the box um, and, and don't think just in your own country. And then, like I said, we're all interdependent with one another. And um, China just happened to be that one country that allowed me to open my eyes to the rest of the world. It doesn't mean that another country can't do the same for, for them. But now things are changing, right? And Americans can't freely move back and forth like they used to, you know? Uh, it's, it's more difficult to get your visas in China. COVID mm -hmm. China changed the whole landscape of people traveling, um, which is unfortunate. Like, we, we, we need to be integrated with each other. We need to be living side by side with each other so we can put all of our differences aside and and do something fun together you know it amazes me sometimes because you'll see like a sporting event like you see a sporting event and you see thousands and thousands of people getting along right and then they go and back and they home get online and like, <laughs> 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 then you go back home and you get on behind your keyboard and it's like a whole different persona right it's so weird <laughs> <laughs> cracks me up all right, last question. What have you got in store in the near future? What do you want people to know that you're doing? Where do you want them to follow you, whether it's IG or check out the next fight or what or IHP? What 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 is it? So so I'm going through another evolution of myself. I'm forty three years old. Um, I don't want to do anything else unless I'm hundred percent passionate about it. Um John Wei Lee and, and the Chinese fighters will be the last combat athletes that I work with. I'm kind of getting away from uh, the coaching side of it. Uh, we're starting a new business where I get a chance to um, be innovative with a lot of the different tools and fitness equipment that we were using. And then I get to also in the production of how I showcase that product, I get to do some storytelling. So I get both, I get fitness, and then through the production of our commercials, I get the storytelling and I get to get behind a camera and start doing some fun things as I get into my mid 40s. I really want to get 
into filmmaking, but I still love fitness, right? So I kind of wanted to find a nice combination of intertwining fitness with film. And so since I'm still green, I thought doing some of the commercials and working with some different videographers and helping me uh, mentor me. Some of my mentors are in their 20s, right? So uh, I'm a student to the game, right? So I just eventually just wanted like to do full feature films. And since uh, we are uh, we are war, I've written about two or three other stories, huh? three other three other stories. Okay. Um, and so I'd like to eventually get those to Netflix or maybe one of the big big screens. That would be fun. Very but cool. Very you, cool. You can follow me. You can follow me on Ruben Payon Jr. on Instagram. Um, we'll be launching the company next week. We're actually going to launch a new company. Um, the company is called Stride Gym, and Stride Gym is a innovative fitness company, and we specialize in small travel size fitness equipment. Mm. So everything's compact. It's, I kind of, you know, Japanese are really good about making amazing things really small. Um, so we're really kind of embracing that and we're kind of creating a new fitness line based on this small, practical, um, little type carrying stuff, little kits. Yep. All right. Thank you so much, Ruben, for taking your time. Hey, and good luck with everything in the future. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Talk to you. I'd like to once again thank today's guest, Ruben Payan Jr. We hope you enjoyed this episode of China from All Angles. If you did, hit subscribe, share with a friend, and leave us a comment. If you want more content like this, head to RadioChina.com. And we also want to say a special thank you for the support from East West Bank, the premier financial bridge between the U.S. and China. East West Bank offers unparalleled services for individuals and companies who build connections between the two countries. East West Bank, bridging cultures. Bridging opportunities, bridging dreams. For more info, visit eastwestbank.com. Member FDIC and equal housing lender. Radii.